0: Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter number six, Mark chapter number six. I want you to pray for me because I'm already tired and vacation Bible school ain't even started yet. That's a good way. I don't know if a man can survive vacation Bible school going into it already tired. Amen. And uh, so you pray for us this week. I appreciate all the hard work that's already gone into it. Uh, the, the average person that comes, sits and goes home would never imagine the labor that goes into a week like this week. And uh, I say that just to say you ought to have gratitude in your heart for those laboring for the Lord. You ought to pray for them pray that God would give them strength for this upcoming week, and you ought to invest in this week, and the way you can do that is uh, be in the place where God can bless you, and if you're an adult, if you ain't got any little ones, come on uh, Monday night through Thursday night, and at seven o'clock, we'll be having that adult class in here, looking forward to that, uh, praying the Lord will bless that, and you can even come on Friday night, we'll let you jump into bouncy house, and uh, throw it to dunk tank, and everything else, so, uh, but now, you adults, listen now, we ain't gonna let you just come on friday all right so if you if some of you adults try to just come on friday to bounce in the bouncy house that ain't gonna work all right so uh please be sure and be praying for this week looking for god to do great things we have a great god and our great god does great things we have a big god who does big things we have a mighty god who does mighty things And we're asking for Him to do that this week and for Him to receive glory through what will take place. Mark chapter number 6. And I want to read to you about a uh, time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus when He could not do a mighty work. And I want us to look at our own lives and think about what God desires to do and ask ourselves if we're allowing God to work in the way that would please Him. Mark chapter number 6, verse number 1. The Bible says, And He went out from thence and came into His own country. He came into Galilee and into Nazareth in particular. And His disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. He could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in this place. Pray that you'd take the holy, inspired, inerrant, powerful Word of God, and that you'd wield it effectively in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, I know that the work that You do in us can only be determined by our willingness to hear You. So I pray that we'd have listening hearts and listening ears this morning and that we would have attitudes of self-examination, Lord, that we would allow You to do a work that would bring You glory. Lord, I pray that it will all be done in a way that we see evidently Your hand, that we might praise You for it. Lord, we love You and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Mark chapter number 6, our passage of Scripture this morning, there is one phrase that sticks out. It is an arresting phrase. It is a jarring phrase. It is a startling phase. And we are told in verse number 5 that though the Lord is present there, we're told in another place that the power of the Lord was present there. He could have done a work in that place that because of the response of the people there that He could do there, He could there do, verse 5, no mighty work i tell you this morning, I've already mentioned it just briefly, we have a mighty God that does amazing things. God has a desire to work in your life and in my life. And even in that phrase that sort of defines uh, this passage of Scripture, there are a few things that we can pick up on that set the stage for the message that God has for us this morning. In that sad, tragic phrase, He could there do no mighty work. I want you to notice, number one, this morning that His power is noted. Did you notice the way the Bible says it? The Holy Ghost is very careful. He says He could there do no mighty work. Can I tell you this? Hey, God's still working in this world. God's still working in the labs of those that will allow Him to do so. Uh, The truth of the matter, and I've seen people go through this experience in uh, a few years of pastoring, I've seen people come in with zeal and with enthusiasm, their hearts fresh and tender to the work of God, and then something happens very often, something that causes offense to them, the same way that it did to these people, and all of a sudden, uh, one preacher friend said it this way, they get bit by the bitter bug. And all of a sudden, they become critics. And all of a sudden, they become cynics. And I've sat and watched... And it's not due to me, certainly. If God does something in this place, it's in spite of me, not because of me. But I've stood and preached and watched God stir the hearts of some in this crowd while this crowd was unmoved. I've seen God do a work, an amazing thing in the lives of some folks and seen other people not get help in any way. I've seen people, I've had people come to me and say, Preacher, this is the greatest church I've ever been in. Uh, It's wonderful. It's amazing. Greatest pastor that we've ever been in had greatest preaching we've ever heard, you pray for folks. I mean, there, there's some folks just don't know no better. And, 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 but I've had people come to me and say that, and then that same week had somebody come to me and say, Preacher, uh, this is just a no account, no good church. We don't get fed. We don't get help. We're moving on. Why is it? And what is the source and cause of this phenomenon? Well, I would say this this morning. There's no question about His power. He's working in some hearts. He's working in some places. And the question we must ask is, rather than saying, why can He work in them? The question ought to be, why can't He work in my heart? His power is noted in this passage. It's not that He could do no mighty work. It's that he could there do no mighty work. And if he's not working in your heart and life, it's not because he can't work. It's because something is preventing his work from taking place. I would say his power is noted. Then number two, I notice his potential is noted. The Bible doesn't say that he could there do no normal work. The Bible does not say he could there do no small work. The Bible does not say He could there do no occasional work, but the Bible says He could there do no mighty work. Can I note to you this morning, He don't just want to work. He wants to work in a big way in your life. He doesn't just want to barely whisper to you. He wants to speak clearly to you. He doesn't want to just barely manifest His presence in your life. Man, He wants to take up and fill up the room of your heart and of your everyday life. I mean, His desire. Think about all that God could have done in that place if they had yielded their hearts to Him. Uh, Dwight L. Moody was once quoted as saying that no man has ever, the world has never seen somebody totally 100% surrendered to God. He said, by the will and hope of God and by the grace of God, I hope to be that man. I wonder sometimes, I mean, listen, I praise the Lord for everything God's done, but don't you ever wonder how much more He could do if we just let Him... Man, I praise God for the... Fo- we've seen folks saved this year and we've seen God do great and amazing things. And I rejoice in that. I ain't poor than God. But I do sit there and think how much more God could do if we just surrender our life to Him. Hey, listen, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him, but He hath showed it to us by His Spirit. In other words, God has a desire to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. He doesn't just want to do small things. He wants to do big things in our life. Uh, Things bigger than just paying our bills. Things bigger than just holding our marriage together. Things bigger than just holding a church together. God wants to do great things in your life. His potential is noted here, but then notice that his prevention is noted. This is amazing. This is going to mess the Calvinists all up. The Bible says, he could, do, he could there do no mighty work. That implies to me that he desired to do a work there. It implies to me that he had both the will and the means to do it, but that something intervened, interrupted, and thwarted his will in this matter. I can't explain to you everything about the will of God. I can't explain to you everything about God's providence and God's sovereignty, but I can say this, there's enough times in my Bible when the will of man thwarts the will of God to note that we have real free will. That's right. uh, God desired to do something in this place, but the problem was He couldn't. And it's not that He couldn't because He didn't have the power. It's right. that He couldn't because He wasn't allowed to. Right. We're told in the Old Testament in Psalm seventy-eight forty-one, about Israel that they limited the Holy One of Israel. Yeah. God wanted to do so much more. And I wonder, don't you know it has to be a frustration for God to sit in glory and look down at broken lives and at people whose, whose everyday living is in pieces and think there's, there's so much I want to do for them. But He's not going to force you against your will. God's never done anything to somebody that they didn't want done for themselves. And He's not going to go beyond your free will. You're going to have to be willing for God to work in your life. Hey, is it not the very apex? Is it not very the epitome of hubris and arrogance to suggest that we're so broken God can't fix us? What kind of God lives in your Bible? Is He a God that is limited by the brokenness of man? Has He not evidenced over and over and over again that He can take blinded eyes and make them see broken legs and make them walk? Hey, He can raise the dead up from the grave. How dare you think your problems are too big for God? We have a God that desires to do great things, that can do great things. But the only thing that can limit Him is the desire and ambition of those that He seeks to work in the lives of. This sad, tragic verse. And when we go and look at the passage more broadly, we learn really what prevented this. You know, everybody, including those there, would have "Amen" me as loud as you have this morning. If this message was being preached to them, they would have responded the same way. If they had took a poll and took a questionnaire and said, who wants God to work in the heart? Every hand would have gone up, every name would have been mentioned, and yet still God couldn't work. Could it be possible that though we say superficially we want God to work, when we find out what God working really looks like, all of a sudden we balk at it. I might as well just... uh, You didn't know this, but you're getting a two for one this morning. I'm going to preach this sermon and then I'm going to come back to this sermon. But can I remind you in the chapter previous to this, there was a maniac of Gadara, a man whose life was twisted by dark satanic influence and power. The Bible tells us that Jesus went into that country of the Gadarenes and He miraculously, supernaturally healed this man. When He did, the Bible says that He uh, committed those devils to depart from that man and to instead indwell a herd of people that was over in the corner, you say, preacher, how wicked is the devil? So wicked he'd waste bacon. Yeah. <laughs> the Bible says this herd of swine ran headlong down into the sea and died. you know, a funny thing happened. The Bible says that the men that owned those swine, they ran into town and told the people that were there what had happened. And the Bible says that whenever those people came out, they prayed Jesus to depart. Hey, they wanted God to work, but not if it cost them their swine. They wanted God to work, but not if it cost them something precious to them. A lot of times we say, now God, work in my life. And then He tries and we slap His hand away. I would say every one of them would have said they wanted God to work, but God could not work. Why is that? Well, I want us to consider this passage through this perspective. Now, Jesus, of course, is God the Son, the Son of God. He is a person. He is an individual. He has a personality. But I'm also reminded in the Word of God that that we are told that He is the Word made flesh. And while we don't have the visible bodily Son of God walking amongst us in this place, we do have something that is a, a more sure word of prophecy that is precious that is powerful that is valuable we have his word with us and so in many ways the way they treated him is the way a lot of us treat the word of God and how you treat the word of God is going to determine what God can do in your life you may not like this it may not be a popular opinion in the day that we live in but this book is what God's working through he's not working through dreams and visions He's working through this Bible. He's not working through occultism or fascination and infatuation with the supernatural. He's working through this book. And so how you treat this Bible, how you react to it is going to determine and dictate exactly what God can do in your life. And when we think about these people, you know what we find? We find that the way they treated Jesus that prevented Him from working is often the way that we treat the Word of God that prevents it from working in our life. I want you to notice two thoughts this morning you heard me right I said two thoughts each thought has a certain number of sub thoughts that then have sub thoughts but two thoughts this morning let me say number one in verses two and three we see the analysis of the word Now I don't know about you when I when I read verse two man it sounds like things are getting ready to bust loose I mean, there's times, I've been in in revival meetings, I've been in services where you could walk in and you could feel it on the parking lot, man. I mean, you could tell people come ready to worship. And I'm going to be honest, if I had walked into church on this day in verse 2, I'd have thought, hey, we're getting ready to have meeting. Everything was right for them to see God work, but there was a problem in their attitude towards the Word of God. In verse number 2, you know what we see? We see their speculative appreciation of the Word. Now, that's a big old $10 fancy phrase, but I'll explain it in a moment. Think with me, number one, about the setting here. The Bible says, when the Sabbath day was come. I'm not going to tell you everything was equivalent between the Sabbath day and our day of worship on Sunday. And I understand the distinctions between all those things. But I think we can all agree with the fact that the Sabbath day was the weekly holy day for the Jewish people. In other words, this was a day that they dedicated to the Word of God. This was a day that they dedicated to prayer. This was, in other words, a likely day of the week where you would think God would be able to work. It is, though not identical, there is a similarity between the idea of them going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and you and I going to church on this Sunday. In other words, we could say this, man. uh, It was Sunday. It was the day when God was supposed to be working. For them, it was Saturday. But for us, it's like us coming into church on Sunday. And we find that reinforced not only by the setting, but by the scene. The Bible says He began to teach in the synagogue. So in other words, here's these Jews for common language, for common descriptions purpose. They go to church on church day and hear the Word of God being taught. Let me go a step further and say they weren't just hearing it taught by just anybody. They were hearing it taught by the Word Himself, by the author of that book. I'd say this, man, try to have a meeting like that and not get help. And yet we find out that they didn't. You know, it's funny. We have some funny ideas about church. Uh, we think so oftentimes that the ability of God to work in our heart is related to the day of the week. Now, you be honest enough. Whether you're honest or not, I already know the truth, so you might as well be honest. And tell me you don't expect God more to work on a Sunday morning than you do on a Wednesday night. Sure you do. I can tell by the way you folks go to church, and me too. <laughs> We oftentimes, we go in on Wednesday night and it's a bunt. That's the way we look at it. Well, if I can just go in and get a little encouragement, that'll be enough. Hey, we've got people. We've got one uh, saved, uh, now married, uh, now got a baby uh, uh, that's growing inside of her that was saved on a Wednesday night. Uh, she comes in as a 15-year-old girl on Wednesday night to get an application for camp and got born again. Hey, no telling what God can do. Not only that, hey, listen—they they come into church, and, and don't get me wrong—we we all think. Sometimes we think, well, if the preaching's really good, I'll be able to get help. Well, you know, I mean, y'all don't think that because you've lowered your expectations. But, but in a lot of churches, they think, well, if the preacher's really on fire, we're going to have church. Hey, you know that God don't need the preacher to be on fire. I mean, I think God likes it. <laughs> i, I like—I I don't quote Abraham Lincoln very much because he was a tyrant and a dictator, but. Um, Hey, man, that's true. He suspended habeas. It doesn't matter. But he said one time, he said, I want to hear a man preach. He said, I want him to look like he's fighting bees. (laughs) Man, I I like for a preacher to be wound up. I, I, I like to know he's preaching and I like to know he knows he's preaching. But did you know God doesn't need the preacher to be fired up? Sometimes we'll say, well, now, preacher, I just need meat. I need truth. I need meat. If it's not a real meaty message, then I'm not going to get help. But can I remind you, here these people are on the right day of the week, in the right place, listening to the most rightest person that ever lived preach out of the rightest book that was ever written. Everything is right for God to work. But then notice what they say. Now, let me say, on, on the surface, what they say sounds really good. The Bible says, many hearing him were astonished, saying, from whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now that sounds real good. But then it leads right into this phrase in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? I'll tell you what I recognize when I read this is that the word that was preached, it hit their ears, but it never hit their heart. They were astonished at it. They were wowed by it. I mean, listen, like connoisseurs that are tasting a a, a fine cuisine, they were content to sample in it and appreciate it and wonder at it, but they sure enough weren't willing to apply it to their lives. Can I tell you a dangerous thing that's happening in independent, fundamental, premillennial, King James only, Bible-believing Baptist churches in this day that we're living in. We are so inundated with preaching that we have become connoisseurs instead of consumers. We want to go through and sample it and appreciate it, but never actually apply it. It's amazing the things they say. Notice, number one, they say they were astonished. Now, I have astonished people with my preaching in times past. Not in a good way. But notice, it doesn't say they were convicted. It says they were astonished. They said, from whence hath this man these things? They're not convinced. They're curious. Now, you'd think what they would have said is, thus saith the Lord... This is the Word of God. Hey, you remember what Nicodemus said? He said, we know that thou art a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these things that thou doest except God be with him. You remember what the Roman soldier said when he saw Jesus crucified? He said, truly, this man is the Son of God. That's not what they said. They said, where did he get all that? (laughs) Can I tell you? Hey, I I mean, listen, God helped me the times that I have listened to a preacher preach and I should have been hearing what God wanted to say to my soul. But instead, I was sitting back stroking my beard saying, wonder where he got that. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you realize this, but this ain't a matter of fascinating you. That's not, if I, if it was, I'd be up here quoting to you pie, the number pie. But that's not the purpose of this. I couldn't quote pie to save my life. I can eat pie, but I can't quote it. Let's say it this way. We see the setting, we see the scene, but then we see the spectators. And one of the great disgraces of modern day Christianity, and by the way, this is obviously true of the liberal churches, but sad to say it's true of a lot of fundamental ones too. We have become consumers, spectators and not worshipers. Now, I I ain't looking to pick no fights this morning. I got enough fights going on without picking fresh new ones. But you know why we got hymnals in the pews? So you can sing along. You know why my outline ain't on a screen? So you'll listen. You know why the Scripture ain't up on a screen? So you'll carry a Bible. Preacher, some folks don't have Bibles. We got Bibles everywhere. Steal one from a Gideon. And you say, now preacher, you're splitting hairs, you're just fussing. No, it's part of a spirit and atmosphere and era and attitude of spectator Christianity. I am a customer and I have come to be entertained. Hey, listen, that's what's killing our Christianity today. If you came just to sit back and pontificate on the points of the pastor's alliterated sermon, I'm sorry, that's the wrong reason to come to church. You should come for God to do something in your heart. If you don't come for Him to do something in your heart, He probably ain't going to be able to do anything in your heart. Notice what they said. What wisdom is this which is given unto Him? Not what wisdom is this which is given unto us from Him, but what wisdom is this which is given unto Him? And then that even such mighty works are wrought by His hands. It's an amazing thing. In that place, the Bible does say He could do, do there do no mighty work, save that He healed a few sick folk. They weren't talking about what He was doing. Oh. They weren't talking about what He was doing right then. He was teaching. They were talking about what He had done in the past. Man, glory to God for what He's done in the past. Why don't you go ahead and just let that live in the past and let's look for God to do something in the present. I rejoice in it, man. I love. We, we had five kids saved at camp. And you know me, my running rule is any kids that I hear of getting saved from now to December count for our church camp. Don't matter if they didn't go to church camp. It don't matter if I've never met them before. That's just, I'm going to count it that way because I'm going to rejoice in it. I hear about some uh, some Botswana getting saved out in the middle of the... West. Hey, glory to God, had another one saved at church camp. Amen. And, uh, but you know, for all that God did, what about what God's going to do? They were so fixated on what he had done that they were missing what he wanted to do. So, oh, preacher, God's done some great things in my life. Man, praise God. Wonder what he still wants to do. Wonder what he still desires to do in your life. I see they're speculative appreciation of the Word. They, they weren't really partaking. They weren't letting it be engrafted into their heart. Instead, they were sitting back and observing and appreciating. And undoubtedly, they were thinking, as often we do, well, I'm glad so-and-so's hearing this. Well, I wish so-and-so could hear this. You know, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but God knew who's going to be in attendance today. You didn't know, and I didn't know, but God knew. God is working in the hearts of those that are present here that will let Him work if we'll be willing to receive it. And you know what this led to? Not only do we see their speculative appreciation of the Word, but that led to a cynical attitude towards the Word. You know why? Because the Word of God transforms people. But it only transforms people by taking root in their heart. If not, if you try to hold it at a distance, hey, uh, cake that's left under glass may be beautiful, but sooner or later it will mold. And if your attitude towards the Word of God is not one of absorbing and letting it be engrafted and applied to your life, sooner or later your attitude towards the Word will change. You know why? Because if you're not getting anything meaningful out of it, you will sooner or later be put in a position where you'll have to choose between that which pleases you and that which is right according to the Word of God. And I hate to say this to you, but I'm going to tell you the truth this morning. If you ain't letting God work in your heart, you're probably getting more out of your flesh than you are out of the Scripture. You're probably getting more pleasure out of your flesh than you are out of the Bible if you're not really applying it in your life. And so when you're faced with a choice, you're going to make the obvious choice. What's the obvious choice? You're going to choose your flesh. They now had a choice. They considered themselves and they thought, now, how do I respond to this? And notice that they responded by attacking the Word of God. Uh, they, They say a few things. Now, these maybe don't seem all that scandalous at first, but when we consider them in the context we find that really what they're doing is they're criticizing him. Really, they have a bitterness to their tone. They say this in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Now, you could say, well, preacher, they were proud. They were bragging on him. No, because the next phrase says this. They were offended at him. They didn't mean this in a positive way. Here's what happened, man. They got too cool for Sunday school. And all of a sudden now their attitude is one of cynicism towards the word of God. Notice they were really trying to say this. We could summarize what he, what they're saying in this by the word common. They were saying, how dare he teach? Don't you know who he is? How dare he say those things to us? Don't you know who he is? If they had really known who he was, if they had really known who he was, Then they would have known that he had more right to say the things that he was saying to them than any other man that ever walked the face of the earth. But you see, they had a wrong perspective of him. They were saying he was common. Well, common in what ways? I would say number one, common in his power. They said, is not this the carpenter? He has no authority. He has no right. To say these things to me. And you know, often when we're faced with the choice between an uncomfortable passage of scripture and the warm comfort of our sin and of our flesh, here's how we'll justify it. We'll say, well, what right does God have to tell me this? Now, we don't say it in those terms. We'll say, what right does the preacher have to say this? What right does that, does that Christian have to say that I'm living wrong? What right does that evangelist have to say that I'm living wrong? I would say this, if it's the opinion of the Christian, the preacher or the evangelist, probably not much, but this was no common carpenter. This was the Son of God. They had to relegate Him to a temporal, carnal attitude and perspective and station in order to justify their rejection of His Word. When we find ourselves doing that, saying, well, what right? What right? Well, I don't have any right, but this Bible has all the right. If what I'm preaching is biblical, then it ain't my words. It's his words. If what that evangelist is preaching is biblical, founded, backed up, substantiated, purely, thoroughly on the authority of the Word of God, then it has the authority of God. And we ought to receive it as such. Here's what they were saying. Well, he's common in his power or in his authority. He's just a carpenter. People say, well, that's." here's how they'll say it. That's your opinion. Is it? Now, let me ask you something. Let me tell you who I was. Before I got born again, I was hellbound on my way, just as lost as any other person that has ever walked through this earth. And I promise you this, I wouldn't have come to the opinions that I've come to except through the authority of the Word of God. Uh, we, we need to be careful. Well, you know, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. Well, if it is my opinion, then my opinion's like your opinion. It ain't worth nothing. But if it's the Word of God, it ain't just opinion. If it's the Word of God, it has authority to it. It, it. They said, well, He's common in His power. But then notice number two, he, he, they said He was common in His purity. They say something interesting. They said, the son of Mary. Why would they say it that way? Well, because it was common knowledge that Joseph was the stepfather of Jesus. Typically, when you spoke of someone's lineage, you would speak of them as the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the son of David. They could have simply said, well, we know his family. But they spit it through their teeth at him. This is the son of Mary. Here's what they were saying, that he was illegitimately born. They were saying, he's not really pure. Don't don't you know who he really is? He's not really 100% pure. He's illegitimately born. That's why we don't have to listen to him, because he's illegitimately born. Hey, listen, the Bible deniers do this on a regular basis. They'll say, well, you know, that Bible was inspired when it was given, Brother Charlie. But then, uh, in the time since then, you know, the thoughts and perspectives and attitudes of man have intermingled with it and that's sort of debased and demoted. It's funny. They can never show you which verses are right and which verses are wrong. That's kind of like, that's kind of like a little yapping dog that barks till the big dog shows up. They're, they're happy to say, oh well, you know, it, it, it's intermingled with error. There's, there's things that aren't right. Show them to me. Show them to me. Show me what's wrong in this King James Bible. Show me what... You can't do that. Don't you think the devil's crowd... Hey, don't you think the publishers of, of of perversions would have it plastered on billboards from California to New York if they could find errors in that Bible? But they can't. You know why? Because it's pure. They said, well, you're illegitimately born. He was the only one that was ever supernaturally born. His God was Father in glory. You know why this world doesn't compute and understand this book? Because it's not of this world; it's of another world. And oftentimes people say, "Well, you know," and they'll, again they'll do the same thing with preaching. That, well, you know, that, that's just what he thinks. And that's, hey, let's just be honest enough to admit that there's sometimes that we reject what's said to us because we just don't like it because it burns our flesh. Let's just go ahead and be honest and quit being a hypocrite. Or else we're never going to get any help. They said, it's the son of Mary. He's not really, it's not, it's not really pure. He's not really legitimate. And then notice this, that led them to say, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Here's what they were saying, that he was common in his power, common in his purity, but common in his peers. Saying, well, there's a lot of them that's like him. There's his brother. There's his other brother. There's his sisters. He ain't special. He's just one Of a crowd. Here's how people do this with the word of God. They'll say well you know. It's just a good book. It's not the word of God. They'll say well you know that's. That, and this is why, hey, listen, you know what the argument's really about today? It's really not a, It's not an argument about King James versus NIV. I've never met an NIV-only person in my life. Have you ever met anyone who said, now I believe the new international version of the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God. I believe every other Bible is wrong, and I believe it's right. I've never met a single. But here's what the argument really is. Do we have a Bible or don't we have a Bible? Is there a book you can hold in your hand and say, now this is the perfect, pure, inspired, inerrant Word of God. It has authority in my life. And if it tells me I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And there's no second guessing it, and there's no trying to change it and warp it and twist it and, 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 and strangle it into agreeing with me. It's really an argument of whether we have a Bible or whether we don't have a Bible. I believe this is the inspired, inerrant, preserved Word of God. Where's your Bible? Where's your Bible? Is there a book you can hold up and say, I believe this is perfect... Pure, unmitigated, uh, unmixed with error. I believe this is the inspired Word of God. If not, then here's what you have. You don't have a Bible. You've just got a book. I could point you to a thousand books that have some truth in them. That's nothing remarkable. The thing that's remarkable is have a book that is completely true, completely inerrant, completely preserved. But here's what happens. When you relegate the Word of God to just being one of many, what you've done is given yourself a lot more options. I remember talking to a fellow years ago. who's actually a family member. and I was witnessing to him and, and uh, I asked him, I said, now, what do you believe? And he said, well, I, I guess I'd call myself agnostic. It's always funny to me that somebody would say, well, I guess I'd call myself agnostic. <laughs> I guess if you say, I guess, then you would definitely call yourself agnostic. But he said, I guess I'd call myself agnostic. And I said, well, what do you believe about God? And what do you believe about, you know, Jesus and everything? He, I'll never forget this. He said, well, I'm not religious, but I guess if I picked a religion, it'd probably be the Greek Orthodox. And I said, that's weird. Now, he's like an East Tennessee hillbilly, you know? I said, That's weird. Why is that? And he said, Well, there's just it's their liturgy is beautiful and this and that and everything. Let me tell you something. Don't you I, that cat loves hero sandwiches. Don't you kid yourself for one moment. But it was always so strange to me that he answered in that Well, I guess if I picked. You know why people relegate the Word of God to be nothing more than a common work of Bronze Age literature? That's the fantasy they have in their mind. Because that gives them options. Then they can say, well, I don't like what it says about this in my life, so I'll go over and pick up this book and see what it has to say about about my life. You know, funny thing, Plato don't have a lot to criticize about you. Only God loves you enough to deal with what's wrong in your life. So when I read this, here's what they did. It led to this cynical attitude. And at the end of the day, man, either this book has authority over you or you have authority over it. You can't pick and choose. One preacher said it this way, it's either absolute or it's obsolete. If we don't believe this is the Word of God, if we don't believe it has authority and that it's pure, let's just go ahead and throw it away. Hey, let's go, let's go down to the Cotton Eye Joe. Let's go live however we want to live. We might as well, right? But if we believe this Bible is the Word of God, then it will have authority in our lives. I see their analysis of the Word. Then number two this morning, I noticed their paralysis of the Word. This attitude caused the Word of God to be of none effect in their lives. Jesus goes on. We see basically three things that result from this. Notice number one, his rebuke. Verse number four. Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. Can I tell you the sad truth about it is a lot of Christians have less reverence and respect for the Word of God than some of even the most reprobate people do. Fascinating thing if you study the history of translation of Bibles. If you go back, pretty much every modern Uh, version, perversion, whatever you want to call it, of the Word of God is based upon the Nestle-Allen Greek text of the 1930s. The Nestle-Allen Greek text was predicated, it was based upon the Westcott and Hort Greek text of 1882. And when you go back and study the lives of these men, Brooke Westcott and Arthur Horton, you study their life and the things they believe. These men had all kinds of nefarious, poisonous ideologies. They worshiped Mary. They subscribed to evolution as a source of creation. They dabbled in the occult uh, when, in their time when they were uh, at uh, Yale. They they were a part of an occultish group that was, of course, spiritism was really big in that time that was uh, devoted to seances and trying to uh, connect and contact people that were dead and just a lot of really ugly, nasty, nefarious things that went on in their life. But did you know that by the time you roll the, the odometer forward about 20 years and they're out of college and they're working on uh, the, the uh, Westcott-Hort Greek text, these men were the leading theologians of their day. Uh, you can read pretty much the, the, the prevailing personal uh, information about these men is contained in, in several large vol- volumes called The Life and Letters of Westcott and Hort. And you can read over 600 pages of their personal correspondence. You know what you won't find? You won't find a single salvation testimony. Yeah. You won't find a single place where they say, hey, listen, I was, I was a sinner, I was lost, God saved me. You say, well, preacher, they didn't talk that way back then. Well, they didn't say, I was a sinner and thou wast on my way to hell and God didst save me. Nowhere do they say, I was a lost sinner and God saved me. Now, they talk about, they talk about writing to Mr. Darwin and being excited about his new groundbreaking theory. That they talk about praying to Mary. But nowhere do they talk about how God saved their soul. And these men were the prevailing theologians of their day. A lot of preachers still have a Westcott's commentary on Galatians sitting on their shelf to this day. You say, what happened, preacher? Well, they had a speculative appreciation of the Word of God. That led to a cynical attitude towards the Word of God. These were not men that were unfamiliar. They were men that were all too familiar. But they didn't honor the Word of God in their life. Can I tell you the truth this morning? Going to church don't make you holy. Staying at home ain't going to make you holy either. But just because you come and sit and listen to sermons, that don't make you close with God. It doesn't make you sanctified. It doesn't make you holy. It's not this building or this atmosphere, but it's the transformative power of the Word of God in your life. And in fact, if you're not going to obey the Word of God, then often your familiarity can breed a contempt that loathing never could produce. He said, here's the problem. You don't honor the Word of God. He doesn't say you don't know me. He said, if anything, you know me better than most do. But the problem is you don't honor me. A recipe to seeing God's work and word paralyzed in our life is to be deeply familiar with it, but to refuse to let it penetrate our heart and change our life. I see his rebuke and that led to his restraint. Verse 5, he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. That's an amazing verse to me. Even with all their unbelief, here's what he did. He sought out those that would believe and did something in their hearts. We have a gracious God. I wonder how often in churches all across this world, the work of God is that which has been done in spite of the reception of the people and not because. I wonder how many times in our church, in our lives, in my life, what God has done has been done in spite of my attitude towards it. Not because of it. Man, we have a gracious, merciful God. But you know what? Hey, listen, the book of Hebrews talks about if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Hey, let us go on unto perfection. Hey, He's done what He's done. Imagine how much more He could do. He saved, hey, He healed a few sick folk. He laid hands on a few. But He would have done so much more. But the problem is He couldn't. He couldn't because they refused to receive Him. And then notice this, and I'm done this morning. Look at verse 6. So what happened? Well, two things. Number one, He marveled because of their unbelief. Notice their legacy. Uh, what were they known for? They were known for the people that wouldn't even let God work. I don't know if you ever really think about this, but we're going to spend eternity somewhere. Yeah. That's right. You're going to have to live with your decisions far longer than you're going to live in your decisions. You're going to leave this world and you're going to have to live through all eternity having to face the way that you've lived. I know we've got these rose-tinted perspectives about heaven and and I understand, listen, I understand that heaven's going to sort and fix and settle a lot of things, but I sure enough wouldn't want to live for the rest of eternity having to, to acknowledge and having to recognize that God wanted to do so much more in my life. But I'm the person that they point to and say, well, that's the person that wouldn't let God work. I see that there's a legacy, but then I see that he left. The Bible says he went round about the villages teaching. Funny thing about it, the Word of God is not bound. Now that doesn't mean it's going to work in your life. What it means is if you won't let it, it'll find somebody that will. Imagine, there were people in that village, no doubt, who had children with broken bodies and broken minds, who had to hear about Jesus going to surrounding villages and healing people. People who needed help, man. But instead, they had to hear about how God was working elsewhere because when they had the opportunity, they refused to let Him work in their lives. I'd say, I'm glad the Word of God, it ain't going nowhere. Amen. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, heaven and earth's going to pass away, and it ain't going to pass away. There was an old preacher one time who used to carry a Bible with him everywhere he went. One time they asked him, they said, Now, why do you carry that Bible everywhere? He said, Well, if the world starts to end, I'm going to throw it on the ground and step on top of it. everything else is going to pass away, but that's still going to be there. (laughs) The Word of God ain't going to go nowhere, but here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that the stirring, ministering power of the Word of God will depart from your life if you won't receive it. I'm going to give you a stark truth. None of us is standing still. We're all either growing or dying, moving forward or moving backwards. And I know you and I wish we had the liberty to maintain the status quo. but That is not the reality of things. If you spurn the Word of God as it works in your heart, your heart will grow colder towards it. If you receive it, your heart will grow tender towards it. And so you and I are faced with a choice this morning. Ah, preacher, we just came into church today, yeah, and I'm sorry to inform you, but the Lord showed up and He's speaking to your heart. So now you have a choice that you're going to make. Are you going to receive the Word of God as it's been given to you, applying it to your heart, to your life? What does that look like, preacher? Well, it looks like saying this. Are there times that I don't receive and hear what God has to say, that I'd rather just maintain a polite, observational relationship with the Word of God than be willing to ask myself the difficult questions about whether I'm living for the Lord the way I ought to be? We need to be willing to apply it to our lives. And you know, you'll find this. Hey, He's working in some places. He wants to do a great work in your life. The question is whether you will let Him. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. This is a moment for self-examination. Every altar call is, but probably this morning more than most. It's time to say, where's my attitude? Where's my spirit? Where's my disposition towards the Lord? Won't you slip out of your seat and come down? Ask the Lord to work in your heart and life. Ask God to ensure that there is a clear line of liberty for Him to speak to you. To do in your heart that which would bring Him glory. These are praying we have all the time we need. If God touched your heart, I I want you to come this morning. These are praying we have all the time we need.